It was one of the worst sermon illustrations ever. It was an object lesson for children. And the pastor had all the kids gathered around, and he had a little egg, fresh egg, and he set the egg down on the stage, and he said, kids, that egg is you. And then he took a hammer, and he said, this hammer is God. And then he reached it up and brought it down, and right before he hit the egg, he took a glass and put it in front of it, and the glass shattered, and the egg was okay. And on one level... You could say he was trying to explain the notion of sacrificial atonement, substitution. The glass was Jesus. But the problem, what made it so problematic is it was a vision of God who hates you and only wants to destroy you. And Jesus, though, loves you, and he wants to protect you. And it sounds a lot like a dysfunctional family in which dad is an abusive alcoholic and mom protects the kids by taking it all on herself. And this is not the picture of atonement that we have in the Bible. In the Bible, we read that it was God the Father who so loved the world that he sent his only son. We read in the Bible that it was the Father who, in love, chose us to be adopted as his sons. And we see in Jesus in the Bible more than just love and grace. We see a moment where Jesus' eyes could burn with hatred toward evil and even wrath, as well as tenderness and love toward those who seek him. Nowhere does this complexity come together more beautifully in my view then in the fifth chapter of John's Apocalypse, our book of Revelation, where we learn about the Lamb. Revelation chapter 5, I'm going to read the first ten verses. John describes his vision. He is in the throne room of heaven, and surrounding him are circles of, of at the center of the throne, and surrounding that angels with four wing, with wings covering their eyes, and, and around that other legions of angels, and then elders, and then all humanity, and all creation, and he's at the center. And this is what John sees. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is the Father, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns. And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. What do we see here? We see that at first there is no one who can secure our salvation, indeed our destiny. The scroll that has seven seals that is in the right hand of the Father on the throne seated. That scroll has seven seals that when broken will bring about the purpose of God in judgment and salvation for his people. It is the scroll of redemptive history. It says, I saw him and it was sealed with seven seals and, and yet no one could open it. No angel, no human, no creature. And so John completely freaks out because no one can secure our salvation. No one can bring down both God's judgment and his salvation. No one can secure God's purpose for the earth. The NIV describes it this way. He says, John said, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The term that's used here is very intense, and the New International Version tries to get at that intensity by saying not just I wept, but I wept and wept. Um, it still doesn't quite get at it. Um, it's a picture of wailing, of hysterically coming undone, of losing it, losing it completely and freaking out. Uh, literary critics and linguists have, have described the experience this way. We've got a video. If we could see if that would work. Kind of the picture of, of what was happening with John. He was coming undone, only for him it wasn't because he broke his spatula. It was because there was no one who could secure salvation, redemption, and the judgment of God. And so when John realizes that no one in heaven or earth can secure our destiny, he freaks out. And that's when someone else is introduced. Someone else comes in to play. Someone else who changes the picture completely. Because this is where we see the warrior lamb arise. What is a warrior lamb? In Jewish literature in the centuries before Christ's birth, there was a common symbolic use of, of, of the term lamb. In the book of Enoch, for example, the great champions of Israel 
are powerful horned lambs, warrior lambs. Samuel is described as a lamb with horns. David is described as a lamb with horns. The horn was a symbol of power. And this is how John sees the glorified Jesus at the throne in Revelation. We read, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seals. And then I saw a lamb standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, and he had seven horns. Seven is a, a number of completion, of perfection, as in the seven days of creation, uh, that the warrior lamb has sevenfold power. He has complete power. He is omnipotent. No one can stand against him, and no seal can go unbroken at his bidding. It is not a weak lamb being led away to slaughter in the book of Revelation. Note that throughout the book of Revelation, John refers to Jesus as the lamb using a different term than he uses in his gospel. Uh, in Revelation, he uses the term arnion instead of the normal term amnos, which would have been used for sacrificial lambs. And this may be because in Revelation, Jesus is so much more than a sacrifice being led to the slaughter. Here in Revelation, the lamb is st standing at the center of the throne of God. He is encircled by the four living creatures that surround God and cry out, Holy, 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 night and day throughout eternity. This is the ultimate position of cosmic power. All authority in heaven and earth, authority over time and space and everything beyond. He had seven horns and seven eyes so that he could see all things in all the earth. He sees everything. He is omnipotent and omniscient. He is the Son of God, and God, the Son, the Lamb, and ruler over all. He is given the title in Revelation, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. In Revelation 17, the Lamb is described as a warrior lamb, triumphant victor, a conqueror. We read, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings. There is a fierceness to the warrior lamb, Jesus, in the book of Revelation. And as such, he is a judge over all. In Revelation 6, we read about the wrath of the lamb, the anger and judgment of the lamb, the punishment of Jesus' enemies in Revelation, interestingly, takes place in his presence. The lamb presiding over final justice. We read they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb, his presence as the warrior lamb, as the conqueror, there to, to mete out justice and to say that sin and evil and injustice and hate do not get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. He is the conqueror. You say, wait a minute, Greg. This doesn't sound like the loving, gentle Jesus that we read about in the gospel. This sounds like violent judgment at the end of time. But I would challenge because our ability to roll our eyes at the thought of a judgmental God, of a violent God, is a privilege that is only shared by the most prosperous people in prosperous places that have seen relatively little of the cruelties of violence, of war, of human injustice and genocide, 
horrific abuse, dehumanizing degradation. Instead, if you look at the weak and the poor and the abused and the victimized and the humiliated and the trampled and the victims of crime and injustice, they see judgment as something very, very different. Imagine, if you will, I've told the story before of a village, French village in 1944, under Nazi occupation, even after the, the Vichy French collaborators had themselves become suspect, the Nazis sent in their own people to clamp down and maintain control. And you can imagine the scene as, as the villagers have all gathered in the center of the village because a young man, 14 years old, uh, has been, has been uh, charged with being uh, a, a resistance fighter. And they have him up against the wall, the side of the village church. And they've got a firing squad ready. And the whole town is there because they're being forced to watch the execution of this young teenage man. And the, his grandmother is begging. She's weeping. She's saying, please, please have mercy. Please don't do this. He's my only grandson. My only grandson left. Please have mercy. And there's no mercy. And as they raise their rifles to fire the shot, they hear rumbling from the top of the hill, rumbling that sounds like machinery, like, like, a, like a train. And as they look up, they see the first of the American tanks cresting the hill. And the Nazis drop their guns. They run to their vehicles. They try to get away. And the American tanks decimate them all. There would be no survivors. Is that a story of judgment or is that a story of salvation? Because the reality is it is both. They are two sides of the same coin, salvation and judgment. Any God who doesn't burn with a passion for justice is not a good God. The God of the Bible is a warrior, a friend of the migrant, the stranger, a defender of the poor, a widow of the orphan, those who have been victimized. God's judgment to them is proof of his love. If you have been a victim of crime, then you understand intrinsically how justice is mercy to the victim. A warrior lamb was likely how John the Baptist had viewed Jesus when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So how is this a picture of Jesus? Jesus frequently and consistently described himself in the recorded Gospels as a king who would sit as judge at history's end. He claimed authority to forgive sins against God. He also claimed to be greater than the temple in which God dwelt. His religious opponents sought his death because he made such claims about himself to be the God who would judge at the end of history. We even catch a glimpse of Jesus' wrath in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, we read of the Pharisees, the pastors, the religious leaders. They were condemning Jesus in the synagogue for having compassion on a man who was suffering from a badly shriveled hand. And before Jesus healed the man, he read the room in that synagogue. We read, and he looked around at them with wrath, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. It was Jesus 
who taught us in the Gospels about the final judgment when many will come to him bragging about all of their good works and all the things that they did for Jesus. And he will say, depart from me, evildoer. I never knew you. The Jesus of history is the Jesus of the Gospels. And this same Jesus is the warrior lamb of the apocalypse. This lamb is also the lion. Did you notice the elder said, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he can open the seals. And he turns around to look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. You remember, this lion is not a tame lion. And what does he see? John looks to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king. He looks, he turns around, and he says, Then I saw a lamb. The lion is the lamb. The lion is the warrior lamb. Norman Hillier explains it this way. It says, It is noteworthy that the apostle John, who had known Jesus on earth so intimately that he could lean on his breast at supper, in Revelation chapter 1, at the sight of Jesus, falls at his feet as though dead. At the same time, however, as the spectacular visions unfold, John is doubtless prepared to hear Christ described as the all-prevailing lion of Judah who shall open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. And yet, as John turns to look, he sees not a lion, but a lamb. The experience of John the Baptist had been parallel. He proclaimed in vivid terms the one who was coming to, to baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire, who, to, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire in Luke 3. And yet, as Christ is baptized, John sees the Holy Ghost as a dove and Jesus as a lamb. And that's because we see that the warrior lamb is also the sacrificial lamb. Notice the seeming contradiction in the way the lamb is depicted within John's vision. He says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. A lamb that's been slain is dead, is weak. Standing in the center of the throne room of God is the most powerful place in the cosmos, beyond the cosmos. The center of the throne is the position of conquest and victory and mighty power. This warrior lamb is also the lamb who had been slain. And so we have this double entendre. The warrior lamb is the sacrificial lamb. The lamb, we read, had been slain. D.A. Carson says it is precisely in the atoning death of Christ that God has revealed himself to us. The cross and resurrection are the climactic self-disclosures of God, not because they hang there naked at the end of history to serve as self-disclosures of nothing but the vaguest sense of divine sentimental love, but because at the climax of redemptive history, God supremely reveals himself to be the loving, sin-bearing God anticipated by the trajectories of old covenant revelation. Because it was by his willing self-sacrifice that the lamb claimed victory over evil, victory over sin, victory over Satan, purchasing for himself the diverse international, multilingual, multi-ethnic people, the Christian church, his bride, his body, his family. And the heavenly creatures and the elders are joined by the prayers of the saints of believers still on earth who praise the lamb, lifting up their praise to the very throne of heaven as incense wafting up into the rafters. And together they sing, 
You are worthy, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And here we see the emphasis on the blood. The blood of Jesus. The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb that was the purchase price of salvation for all who believe in him. I've been reading through Leviticus in my own devotions. And it's fascinating just to read the rituals in which the sinner would come and they would bring their lamb and they would lay their hands on the lamb and transfer their guilt from themselves symbolically to that lamb. And then that lamb would be slain. Its blood would be shed instead of ours. It's training God's people to understand, as the Bible says, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Training us to look outside ourselves to a savior, to a substitute that God will provide, not a lamb, but the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here we see the kingdom and the saving rule of the lamb in King Jesus, the creator himself. The lion is the lamb, the warrior lamb, who is victorious, Christus victor, Christ the victor, but whose victory was gained through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. In 1955, Billy Graham was invited to speak at the University of Cambridge by a small group of Christians who attended there. Uh, John Stott had been instrumental in arranging for Graham to speak, and almost immediately letters started to show up in the Times of London, essentially saying, this man is not somebody who could, to, could come and speak to our brightest of the bright college students at Cambridge. You know, I'm sure Graham is a good man, but he's a fundamentalist, the sort that believes in the blood of Jesus, something required for salvation. You know, this sort of thing doesn't go over well on this side of the Atlantic. I can't imagine the fine young men of, and women of, of Cambridge could learn much from an une, uneducated man like Billy Graham. And, and Billy found the prospect of conducting a, a full-scale university mission at Cambridge uh, pretty daunting. Uh, he told Scott, he wrote to Scott and said, I'm deeply concerned and in much thought about the mission. John, I have never felt more inadequate and totally underprepared and as I think over the possibility for messages, I realize how shallow and weak my presentations are. When Billy arrived in Cambridge, John arranged for him to talk privately with C.S. Lewis, then a, a fellow of, of Maudlin College. And the three of them met in Lewis's rooms at Maudlin and spent an hour or so there. Um, Graham later admitted, I was afraid I would have been intimidated by, by C.S. Lewis, but I was relieved to find that he immediately put me at ease. But the British press was predicting that Cambridge students would cause a riot during the talks, just as they had done years earlier when D.L. Moody had spoken at Cambridge. The previous year, when Graham first visited the UK, questions were asked in Parliament as to whether he should be allowed to land in Britain. Newspapers were against the visit. Church leaders who had given an invitation had backed down. The Archbishop of Canterbury told Graham that he wasn't welcome in Britain. The American ambassador warned him not to come. This time, Graham was warned to expect the worst at Cambridge. British elite didn't want to be told about blood sacrifices and some perceived need for salvation by a poorly educated American preacher with a southern drawl. 
is where he'd ground. And so he set about creating eight erudite, sophisticated, scholarly lessons. They were totally different than what he typically did. He had one lesson for each night, each of the eight nights he was going to preach at Great St. Mary's Church. There were about 8,000 students at Cambridge at the time, and each night Graham packed the church with 2,000 students and faculty. On the first Monday and Tuesday night, Graham delivered his prepared remarks, and nothing happened. Nothing. So on Wednesday night, Graham set aside his prepared remarks, and he said, let me tell you what I know about the cross of Jesus Christ. Dick Lucas was there that night, and he shares his eyewitness account. I'll never forget that night. I was in the totally packed chancel sitting on the floor with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one leg and the chaplain of a college who was a future bishop on the other. Both of these were very good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. So dear Billy got up that night, and he began at Genesis and went right through the, the whole Bible, and he talked about every single sacrifice you can imagine. The blood was just about flowing all over the place, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. And most, both of my neighbors were, were terribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. It was everything they disliked and everything they dreaded. But at the end of the sermon, Billy Graham dismissed the audience and invited anyone who wanted to stay behind and make a commitment to Jesus Christ to do so. And that night, to everyone's shock, 400 young men and women, students at Cambridge University, stayed behind to dedicate their lives to Jesus Christ. Decades later, Christian leaders around the world still look back on that Wednesday night in Great St. Mary's Church, Cambridge, as the event that forever changed their lives and set their futures on a course of service to Christ and to the world. Scholars of religion look back on that 45 minutes as the moment that changed the religious landscape in all of Great Britain. The impact was such that Graham later dined with the Queen. He was interviewed by David Frost for the BBC. He appeared in the pages of the national press only this time in positive stories. Christians found their non-Christian friends asking them if they were going to hear Graham. Prime Minister Winston Churchill summoned him to Number 10 Downing Street for tea. One historian wrote, perhaps his greatest legacy is that he loved the British people. And all he did was tell them about the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb. The power of the blood of the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, Lord Jesus, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased us for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your son, that in love you chose to send him into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for us, a warrior lamb who rises up to defeat evil, and a sacrificial lamb slain for our sake. Lord Jesus, you are indeed the conqueror.
And so visit with us in this meal. Visit with us in this sacrament as we commune by faith with you, Lord Jesus, at the right hand of the Father. As we commune with your flesh and blood by your power and by your spirit, we pray that you would awaken in us a greater love, a deeper repentance, and a more radical commitment to serve you all the days of our life, holding no chips back of our own, but giving everything we are to you, Lord, as your very own possession. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.